Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com is the email address. And you can find us on Twitter at Ratchet Book Club. Um, you can leave a review on Podchaser. Um, if you leave a review there, you can review separate episodes as well as the show as a whole. Uh, you can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts, uh, Podcast Addict, and Stitcher. So, I'm thinking I'm going to finish this book today. And um, we, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, that last episode was kind of tough. I mean, it was beautiful. But it was a good discussion, right? Like the the discussion of when this book was written, what era it was written to be in, and and all those things. And I'm st- I'm still pretty certain that it's supposed to be in the late seventies or early eighties. Like I'd say no no later than nineteen eighty four, because they had TVs, multiple TVs in the house, so that takes it past the sixties. Um, and there was still lingering racism in Pennsylvania. So that takes it anywhere between time immemorial and 2021. Um, but I, I just feel like this was, I was going to put it at like 1984. I'd like to check with Jerry and actually see what he has to say one day. Chapter 32. Most mornings, Grayson will be the first one out of bed. He will turn on the space heater visit the Banshell lavatory, then heat up some water, get breakfast ready, and finally wake the boy with a gentle shake of the shoulder. On December 30th, it was the silence that woke Maniac, and the cold. The space heater wasn't on. No steaming cup sat on the table. The old man was still under the covers. Maniac went over. Grayson. He shook the old man. Grayson? He took the old man's hand. It was cold. Grayson! See, I had to resist reading that like Metal Gear Solid. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Snake? Snake? Snake! I had that as my ringtone once. My brother had as his ringtone this gangster rap song. No, let me rephrase that. He had a regular ringtone because this is on Nokia. But you remember back in the day when you first realized you could put voicemails on your phone and you could put a song on your phone and then you say something over. So you hold your phone close to the speaker and it feels a slow song because you thought you were a, a player. You say something smooth like, <clears throat> yeah, this is the freaky deaky. I'm not here right now, but give me a call and I'll hit you back. One. He wasn't like that. He was a um, big fan of gangster rap. So he put his phone next to the speaker and out popped um, Spice One's Busters Can't See Me. And the song starts off by saying, giggity, giggity, gangsta, giggity, giggity, gangsta, giggity, giggity, get that bleep, because this is a clean version of the show. Y'all are welcome. My dad called him. Phone rang, phone rang, because you wanted to go to voicemail so people could hear your hard work. My brother didn't pick it up. I guess my dad didn't like the song, because he left a message that said, yeah, I just sat through a minute and 35 seconds of music to be able to lead this message. I'm going to need you to giggity giggity get that song the heck off your phone before I giggity giggity get home and giggity giggity get your phone out your hands. 
giggy the giggy the goodbye. <laughs> that was the last time my brother put that song on his phone. As far as I know. When I call him, he answers. Also, we're in a text message era now, so. Let's giggity giggity go back to the book. He didn't run to the superintendent's office. He didn't run to the nearest house. He knew. He held the cold, limp hand that had thrown the pitch that had struck out Willie Mays. That had betrayed the old man's stoic ways by giving him a squeeze. He began talking to the old man about places he had been on the road, about places the two of them might have gone to, about everything. Then he began to read aloud. He read aloud all the books the old man had learned to read. And he finished with the old man's favorite, Mike Mulligan's Steam Shovel. When he looked out the window, it was night. He dragged his chest protectors along the old man's mat and lay down. And only then, when he closed his eyes, did he cry. The funeral, such as it was, took place on the third day of the new year. Maniac had at last gone to tell someone, the zookeeper, and from then on he pretty much stayed out of the way. Grayson came to the cemetery in a wooden box. The pallbearers were unknown to Maniac. They were members of the town's trash collecting corps. And as they huffed and bent to lay the box over the hole, they smelled vaguely of pine and rotten fruit. Maniac was the only mourner. He had thought the park superintendent might show, or the attendant at the Y locker room, or maybe the lady who ran the park food stand in the summer. None were there. Only Maniac and the man from the funeral home and the six pallbearers and two men off to the side, smoking cigarettes and leaning on a little hole-digging tractor that made Maniac think of something. He smiled inwardly. Hey, Grayson, look. Mike Mulligan's steam shovel had a baby. High above, a silver plane crossed the sky, silent as a spider. A voice startled Maniac. When's he coming? It was one of the pallbearers. The man from the funeral home pushed down the top of his black leather glove to expose his watch. Should be here now. Should have been here five minutes ago. How long we gotta wait? The funeral man shrugged. All but one of the pallbearers lit up cigarettes. Maniac wished she hadn't come. This event had nothing to do with the man who once lived in the body in the wooden box. I'm freezing my Kochangas off, a pallbearer announced. Me too, said another. Hey, you know, called one of the grave diggers. We ain't waiting all day to fill in that hole. Everyone looked at the man in the long black coat. He looked again at his watch. Traffic, probably. The minister, thought Maniac. That's who we're waiting for. A pallbearer walked over to the funeral man. We hauled the stiff here. Ain't that enough? They only give us an hour. Another pallbearer chimed in. Let's go get some donuts. Hot coffee, baby. Loud clanks. A grave digger was striking the baby steam shovel with a spade. The funeral man sighed. He pulled out his own cigarette, littered from the glowing tip of the pallbearers. Give it two more minutes, then we'll see. Maniac waited for one of those minutes, searching the horizon for signs of a minister. Whatever was going to happen at the end of the next minute, he didn't want to see it. So he ran. 
Hey, kid, they called. Yo, kid. But he was running. Running. I can't imagine being a kid and... First of all, this is the third time, technically, second time officially, that Maniac has lost his parents. He lost his parents to the, on the train accident, and then he lost Grayson. And I can't imagine standing and being the only person to go to my, my mom's funeral. Nobody else is there. And all the pallbearers are talking about how they wish they could hurry up through something that is the last time I'm going to see somebody so then they can go get some coffee and donuts as a kid. I can't fathom that. I don't like funerals in the first place, but I really couldn't fathom that being all alone. Nobody even asking him anything. Nobody's even noticing him till he runs. Part three. Chapter 33. January of that year was too cold and dry for snow. It was a month of frozen hardness, of ice. Maniac drifted from hour to hour, day to day, alone with his memories, a stunned and solitary wanderer. He ate only to keep from starving, warmed his body only enough to keep from freezing to death, ran only because there was no reason to stop. Even if the superintendent had allowed it, he could not have brought himself to stay at the band show. He returned only long enough to pick up a few things. A blanket, some non-perishable food, the glove, and as many books as he could squeeze into the all-black satchel that had hauled Grayson's belongings around the minor leagues. Before he left for good, he got some paint and angrily brushed over to 101 on the door. During the days, he ran usually a slow jog, but sometimes he would suddenly sprint, furious 10 or 20 second bursts, as though trying to leave himself behind. Sometimes he walked. He crossed and recrossed the river. He wandered in all directions through all the surrounding communities and townships, Bridgeport, Conshohocken, East Norton, West Norton, Jeffersonville, Plymouth, Worcester. Whenever he crossed the bridge over to Skullkill, he turned his eyes as to not see the nearby PNW trestle. Even so, in his mind's eye, he saw the red and yellow trolley careening from the high track, plunging to the water, killing his parents over and over. After a while, he stopped crossing the bridge. Other than that, he went wherever there was room to go forward, along roads and alleys and railroad tracks across fields and cemeteries and golf courses. From high above, a tracing of his route would have looked as hopelessly tangled as Cobble's knot. By nightfall, he was back in two mills. He had retrieved the satchel from wherever he had stashed it and found a place to endure the night. A few times he revisited the buffalo pen, where he covered himself with a second blanket of straw. Other times, his overnight quarters might be an abandoned car, an empty garage, or a basement stairwell. When his original supply of food ran out, he fed himself at the zoo, or at the soup kitchen down at the Salvation Army. He did odd jobs for housewives, ran errands for shopkeepers. He would not beg. One day, he found himself amongst monuments and cannons in rolling hills. He was in Valley Forge. 
Here the Continental Army has suffered through a winter of their own, and the vast, dark, frozen desolation itself seemed a more proper monument than statues and stones. The only buildings here were tiny log and mortar cabins, replicas of the army shelters. Maniac could feel the ache swelling outward from his breast and filling the enormous, bounding spaces. He returned to town for the satchel and put himself up in one of the cabins. It was scarcely bigger than a large doghouse. The floor was dirt. There was a doorway, but no door. Several saltines fell from the blanket. He threw them outside. Let the birds have them. He wrapped himself in the blanket and lay down. He lay there all night and all the next day. Dreams pursued memories, quartered and danced in couple with them, and they became one. And the gaunt, beseeching phantoms that called to him had the rag-wrapped feet of Washington's regulars, and the faces of his mother and father, and Aunt Dot and Uncle Dan, and the Bills and Earl Grayson. In that bedeviled army, there will be no more recruits. No one else would orphan him. The second evening came and went. Maniac never stirred. Knowing it would not be fast or easy, and wanting, deserving, nothing less, grimly, patiently, he waited for death. Chapter 34 It was during the second night in the cabin that he heard the little voices. They were not soldiers' voices. I'm going in this one. No, that one. This one's bigger. I'm tired. I'm stopping. You stupid meatball. It's right there. Another two seconds. I'm staying. Great, you beef jerky. Stay. I'm going to that one. Good night. Silence. Then, hold on. I'm coming. That was all. The ghostly soldiers returned, their haunted eyes seeking warmth, food, life. There was no morning, only daylight in the doorway. He pushed himself up, dragged himself outside in the blinding light. The saltines lay in the brown, frozen grass. The next cabin was nearby. January slipped an icy finger under his collar and down his back. He pulled the blanket tighter around himself, but it was too late. The finger had touched the last warm coal in his hearth, and his body, fanning the ember, shook itself violently. He walked to the next cabin, looked inside, and saw a body huddled in the corner. An eye opened, stared at him. Then, in succession, three more eyes opened. The body divided and became two. Two little boys. Get a load of this meatball said the one with the front tooth missing. He walks around with the blanket on. Hey, Meatball, why don't you bring your mattress along too? And your pillow too, screeched the other. The missing tooth whipped off his woolen cap and smacked Screecher in the face. Screecher retaliated, and Maniac had to step back while a two-kid tornado swirled around the cabin. When they finished, they rolled onto their backs, shook their legs at the ceiling, and laughed as long as they had fought. The volume coming from Screecher was incredible, as though a microphone was embedded in his throat. Finally, Missing Tooth rediscovered the stranger standing in the doorway. Hey, Meatball, you running away? No, not really, Maniac replied. Well, we are. 
went Screecher. Where are you going? Maniac asked. The answer came from both. Mexico. Maniac bit back a grin. When they stood, he saw they couldn't have been more than four feet tall or eight years old. Well, he said, it's good and warm down there, but it's pretty far, you know. Yeah, we know, growled Missing Tooth. You think we're meatballs like you? He grabbed a supermarket bag in the corner and opened it. Look. It was filled with candy, cupcakes, pies, even a pack of butterscotch crimpets. Maniac's stomach rasped against itself. He remembered how thirsty he was. Where'd you get all this? We stole it! Screecher blurted. The other smacked him with his cap. Shut up, Piper, you stupid sausage. You don't go telling people you stole stuff. Piper returned the cap slap. You shut up, Russell. I didn't tell him where we stole it. This time the fight was over in less than a minute. But it started up again when Maniac asked where they were from. And Piper said, two mils. And Russell said, shut up. He might be a cop. And bopped him good. When they settled down, they stared at him warily. Piper snickered. He ain't no cop. He a kid. Yeah, sneered Russell. That's how much you know. They got cops that look like kids. That's how they catch kids. I do a show called Hindsight. And I am literally dying to do Cooley High. Because of the part where they're talking to some sex workers. And they get money from the sex workers that act like they're cops. And the ladies are like, y'all look kind of young to be cops. And one of them says, that's why they hired us, baby. Because we don't look like cops. I've forgotten they said that in this book. Almost read it like that. They stared at him some more. They moved in cautiously, one on either side. They opened his blanket. They patted him all over. What are we doing this for? Piper wanted to know. We're feeling for a gun, Russell explained. Oh. After the padding, they backed off. So, said Russell, you ain't a cop? Not me, said Maniac. He moved in from the doorway. I'm, and with only a moment's pause, the story came to him. A pizza delivery boy. We have a contest every week, and you two were chosen for a free pizza. The two gaped at each other. We were? Yep, a large. Where is it? demanded Russell, glancing around. At Cobble's Corner, you have 24 hours to claim your prize. He waited while they bickered over what to do. Valley Forge is a good five or six miles from two mills. These kids might not have made it to Mexico, but they had come a long way and stayed out overnight, and someone somewhere must be worried sick about him. And he had a feeling they weren't kidding about stealing the food. He figured he'd better help them make up their minds. You know, he said, you're taking the long way to Mexico. If you come back to two mills with me, I'll show you a shortcut. That did it. Soon, the three of them were trekking past the Washington Memorial Capitol, Russell and Piper with their bag, Maniac with his satchel.
It was early afternoon when they walked into Cobble's Corner at Hector and Birch. Maniac produced his certificate for conquering Cobble's Knot, and 20 minutes later, the young runaways were attacking a large pizza with pepperoni. Maniac confined himself to three glasses of water and half a dozen crimpets. The boys agreed with Maniac that they ought to stay the night in their own house before setting out for Mexico in the morning. They were barely a block from Cobbles when Maniac heard a familiar voice. Bellowing and barreling down the street was a fearsome fastballer, king of the Cobras, big John McNabb himself, and he was roaring mad. Maniac might have taken off, but he found himself clung to and clutched by the two little urchins. They huddled behind him like babies on a possum's back as Giant John came red-faced and huffing up to them. Where have you been? he yelled. As Maniac considered what to say, the urchins peeped from behind him. We wasn't no place, John. We was right here, with this here kid. And he ain't no cop either. We checked him out. For the first time, Giant John looked straight at Maniac. A smile crossed his face. Well, well, the frogman. The smile vanished. So what are you doing with my little brothers? Chapter 35 It took a while for everything to get straightened out. First, Giant John had to be convinced that Maniac was not kidnapping his brothers. Then the brothers had to do some more trembling and clinging while John finished lambasting them for running away, which apparently they did just about every other week. Then, when the brothers found out that their pizza person was none other than the famous Maniac McGee, the very same one who had blasted their big brother's fastballs to smithereens and finished him off with a home run frog, well, it took a good five minutes of rolling on the sidewalk to get all the laughing out of their system. Which, of course, got Giant John more than a little steamed. Prompting Maniac, who didn't like seeing John disgrace in front of his little brothers, to say, yeah, but didn't John tell you what happened the next day? And the brother said, no, what? And Giant John said, huh? And Maniac winked at John and crossed his fingers. Sure, John, you remember, wink, wink, at the Little League field the next day. You said I was lucky that all you threw me was fastballs because you weren't ready to reveal your secret pitch, the one you've been working on, remember? Wink. McNabb nodded dumbly. And so I said, well, come on, I can hit anything. Pitch it to me. And you pitched it, and I missed it by a mile. And you kept pitching it to me all day long, and I never even hit a foul ball on it. What was the pitch? What was the pitch? Chanted the urchins. It was. Maniac stopped for dramatic buildup. The stop ball. The stop ball? Yeah, and you should have seen it. It comes right up to the plate, looking all fat and easy to belt, and then, just when you take your swing, Maniac got into his batter stance and demonstrated, it sort of stops, and your bat just whiffs the air. He whiffed at an imaginary stop ball. Wow, said the brothers, gazing up at their big brother. 
And so, Maniac was invited to accompany their brothers McNabb to their home. Despite the cold, the front door was wide open, and Maniac could smell the inside before he could see it. The first thing he did see was a yellow, short-haired mongrel looking innocently up at him while taking a leak in the middle of the living room floor. Clean that up, John ordered Russell. Clean that up, Russell ordered Piper. Piper just walked on by. After closing the front door, which was surprisingly heavy, Maniac found a stack of newspapers in the corner. He laid some over the puddle to soak in, then gave himself a tour to downstairs. Maniac had seen some amazing things in his lifetime, but nothing as amazing as that house. From the smell of it, he knew this wasn't the first time an animal had relieved itself on the rugless floor. In fact, in another corner, he spotted a form of relief that could not be soaked up by newspapers. Cans and bottles lay all over, along with crusts, peelings, core, scraps, rinds, wrappers, everything you'd normally find in a garbage can. And everywhere, there were raisins. As he walked through the dining room, something, an old tennis ball, hit him on top of the head and bounced away. He looked up, into the laughing faces of Russell and Piper. The hole in the ceiling was so big they could have jumped through it at once. He ran a hand along one wall. The peeling paint came off like cornflakes. Nothing could be worse than the living and dining rooms. Yet, the kitchen was. A jar of peanut butter had crashed to the floor. Someone had gotten a running start, jumped into it, and skied a brown, one-footed track to the stove. On the table were what appeared to be the remains of an autopsy performed upon a large bird, possibly a crow. The refrigerator contained two food groups, mustard and beer. The raisins here were even more abundant. He spotted several of them moving. They weren't raisins. They were roaches. The front door opened, and seconds later a man clomped into the kitchen. He wore no winter jacket, only a sleeveless green sweatshirt, which ballooned over his enormous stomach. Tattoos blued his upper arms. His hands were nearly pure black. Stale body odor mingled with that of fries and burgers coming from the Burger King bag he held. Dropping the bag next to the bird remains, he bellowed, Chow! And took a beer from the fridge. He downed a good half of it in one swig, belched, double-clutched, and belched again. He had to know someone beside himself was standing in the kitchen. And, just as obviously, he didn't care. Two floor-quaking crashes came from the dining room. Geronimo! Geronimo! Russell and Piper had taken the direct route via the hole. What'd you bring, Dad? Whoppers? Yeah, whoppers! They tore into the bag like jackals in a carry-on. Plastic flew. Fries flew. They both want the same whopper. Mashed between their tugging fists, the whopper splurted sauce and cheese and pickle chips. Then it split. 
Russell lurched backwards into the kitchen table his half. Piper lurched backwards in the opposite direction, and with nothing to stop him, sailed right through the cellar doorway and down the cellar steps. The final thud was following by the truck horn blast of Piper's laughter. When Giant John ambled in, his father said, Get the blocks? No, grunted John, pulling out a pair of whoppers. He tossed one a maniac. We need more, growled the father. John didn't answer. We need more. I heard. McNabb smashed the tabletop. Three fries and a bird wing jumped to the floor. Now! John walked out, nonchalantly munching. I was busy. The rest of the night were scenes from a loony movie. Scene. McNabb the father swaggers bare-armed out the front door, bellowing back, Do your homework! Scene. Maniac retrieves the wet newspaper from the living room. There are no wastebaskets in the house. He found a trash can in the backyard, next to a pile of cinder blocks. He dumps the soggy papers in the can, which is empty. Scene. Small turds of an unfamiliar shape appear here and there along the baseboards of the first floor. Please don't be rats, Maniac prays. Scene. The Cobras come in. They glare at Maniac, but Giant John tells them to lay off. They raid the fridge for beer. They smoke cigarettes. They belch and fart. They curse. Russell and Piper, Kitty Cobras, pop their own beer cans. Guzzle, swagger, belch, smoke, curse. Scene. Football game. From the front of the living room to the back of the dining room. Except for space, it has everything a regular game has. Running, passing, blocking, tackling, kicking. There's little furniture to get in the way. Ordinarily, the windows wouldn't last five minutes. But the windows of this house are boarded up with plywood. Body block cobras fly into the walls. The house flinches. Scene. A faint rustling noise behind the stove. Oh no, rats. Maniac dares a look. It's a turtle, box turtle, munching on an old whopper lettuce. Whew. Scene. The boy's bedroom. Russell and Piper lie prone at the hole. They fire toy submachine guns. Tata, 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 tata. At the cobras heading out the front door. Piper jumps up and blows Maniac away, killing him at least 15 times. This is how we're going to do it. Bam, bam, bam! The guns will be real, said Russell, still prone and firing, the stock of the toy gun tight against his cheek. Yeah, squawked Piper. Real! He flops back to the floor, sprays the hole downstairs. Soon as they start coming in, bam, bam, bam! Who? said Maniac. The enemy, said Russell. Who's that? said Maniac. Russell stops firing long enough to send Maniac a where have you been look. Who do you think? he sneers. 
He points the red barrel of the submachine gun towards the bedroom door. Towards the east. The east end. The heavy front door. Scene. Darkness. Silence. Sometime early morning. Maniac lies between the two brothers on the bed. Do cockroaches climb bedposts? Unable to sleep, asking himself, what am I doing here? Remembering, Hester and Lester on his lap, Grayson's hug, corn muffin in the toaster oven. Thinking, who's the orphan here anyway? Hearing, as he at last lowered himself in the sleep's deep waters, a door slam, a slurred voice. Do your homework. Fearing. Will I float? Chapter 36. The deal was, if Russell and Piper went to school for the rest of the week, Maniac was showed in a shortcut to Mexico on Saturday. He figured if they all managed to survive till then, he'd come up with something. On Saturday, the boys had their paper bag packed, and Maniac had a new deal. Go to school for another week, and he'd treat them to another large pizza. Besides, he said, crossing his fingers, this is volcano season down in Mexico. The whole place is a sheet of red-hot lava. Better wait till it cools down. They bought it, and they bought the same deal the following week. But school was still agony for the boys. It had to be worth more than a pizza a week. But what? The brothers thought and thought about it and soon began to realize that the answer was sleeping in between them every night. Ever since the famous Maniac McGee had shown up at their house, Russell and Piper McNabb had become famous in their own right. Other kids were always crowding around, pelting them with questions. What's he like? What's he say? What's he do? Did he really sit on Finsterwald's front steps? Is he really that fast? Kids started giving them knots, sneaker laces, yo-yo strings, toys, and asking, Ask Maniac to undo this, will you? Really little kids referred to him as Mr. Maniac. The McNabs ate it up. In the streets, the playgrounds, school. The attention, not the pizza, was the real reason they put up with school each day. They began to feel something they had never felt before. They began to feel important. What a wonderful thing, this importance. Waiting for them the moment they awoke in the morning. Pumping them up like basketballs. Giving them bounce. And they hadn't even had to steal it. They loved it. The more they had, the more they wanted. And so, when Maniac tried to cut the next pizza for school deal, Russell answered, No. Oh. Echo Maniac, who had been afraid it would come to this. No, said Russell. We want something else. Oh, said Maniac. What's that? They told him. If he wanted another's week's worth of school out of them, he would have to enter Fensterwall's backyard and stay there for ten minutes, screeched Piper, who shuddered at the very thought. When Maniac casually answered, Okay, 
It's a deal. Piper ran shrieking from the house. On the next Saturday morning, Russell, Piper, and Maniac set out for Fencerwald's house, about seven blocks away. They took the alleys. Along the way, they were joined by other kids who were waiting, their eyes at once fearful and excited. By the time they got to Fencerwald's backyard, at least 15 kids huddled against a garage door on the far side of the alley. Maniac didn't hesitate. He walked straight up to the back gate, opened it, and went in. Not only that, he went all the way to the center of the yard, turned, folded his arms, smiled, and called, Who's keeping time? Russell, his throat too dry to speak, raised his hand. For 10 minutes, 15 kids, and possibly the universe, held their breath. The only sounds were inside their head. The moaning and wailing of the ghosts of all the poor slobs who had ever blundered on the Fencerwald's property. To the utter amazement of all, when Russell finally croaked, Time! Maniac McGee was still there, alive, smiling, apparently unharmed. Even more amazing, he didn't come out. Instead, he said, Say, you guys, how about I add something to the deal? If I do something else while I'm here, will you make it to the next two weeks of school? What, what are you going to do? stuttered Russell. Maniac thought for a minute, then announced brightly, I'll knock on the front door. Five kids fenced on the spot. Several others screamed, No, don't! Piper went into some sort of fit and began kicking the garage door. Russell zoned out. Maniac took all of this to signify a deal. He hopped the backyard fence and strolled around front. The others went back down the alley and around the long way. They stationed themselves not only across the street, but almost halfway up the block. And even then, they squeezed together in a bunch, as though, if they allowed any space between them, Finsterwald might somehow pick them off, one by one. They huddled, trembling, to bear witness to the last seconds of Maniac McGee's life. They saw him stand directly in front of the red brick three-story house. The bile greens window shades. They saw him climb the three cement steps to the front door. The portal of death. They saw him raise his hand. And though they were too far away to hear, they saw him knock upon the door. And 15 hearts beat in time to that silent knocking. The door opened. Finsterwall's door opened. Not much, but enough so the witnesses can make out a thin strip of blackness. Would Maniac be sucked into that black hole like so much lint into a vacuum cleaner? Would Finsterwall's long, bony hand dart out, quick as a lizard tongue, and snatch poor Maniac? Maniac appeared to be speaking to the dark crack. Was he pleading for his life? Would his last words be skewered like a marshmallow by Finsterwald's dagger-tipped cane? Apparently not. The door closed. Maniac bounded down the steps and came jogging towards them, grinning. <laughs> Three kids bolted. Sure, he was a ghost. <laughs>
The others stayed. They invented excuses to touch him, to see if he was still himself, still warm. But they weren't positively certain until later, when they watched him devour a pack of butterscotch crimpets. <sighs> okay, so we'll end it with the next one. I just want to point out real quick that just like I said at the beginning of the book, racism is learned. Those kids don't even know who they're fighting against. They don't know a thing about them. They don't have a father who's really there to teach them anything and I didn't hear anything about a mother. I wonder what happened. I don't want to speculate because it's not my book to write. But that house is in shambles. And to Lord, the hatred that you have to hold when your house looks like that is either a hatred born from a parent who is upset that how are those others doing better than I am or a fear? How did they get what I don't have? And it just festers. And nobody ever asks why it's there. You know? Kids 60 years from now won't know why you got into a fight with your next door neighbor. They'll just know that they haven't talked to their grandkids in years. Their house was trashed. We saw a house like that once where they let the dogs pee all over the floor. We were going to buy it till we smelled the piss. It was a beautiful house. But they let their dogs pee all over a hardwood floor. Who does that? I guess they do that. I'm not saying they like... I'm saying they like the McNabs. Jerry Spinelli wanted to make a point with this. For everything that they said about black and white, the black folks lived comfortably. Three kids. Two-parent household. A dog. Bathing. Happiness, food, friendliness, as compared to the McNabb's house. Dirty, desolate, door left wide open. You could smell it from down the block. Unbathed, unloved. It's weird the things that you don't see when you're a kid that still soak in. Like, Right there in that chapter, you see you're not better than me. You just believe you're better than me. And you want to fight me because of your beliefs that you're better than me when you're really not. Don't be like that, kids. Take your time to get to know somebody before you decide if you hate them. That didn't come out right. But it's still apt. If you're going to hate somebody, have a reason for it. They they stole your drink. They pushed you down. They're a bully. You counted to ten when they were at the water fountain and they kept sipping. Because that really, I mean really, that's a thing. But not because of nothing. And never make your decisions on somebody else's opinion. Find out for yourself. Unless they're saying that person literally has a knife and has stabbed four people. I wouldn't walk over and try and shake their hand. That's probably a bad idea. 
worst case scenario, black people's rule number five. If you see people running, you're running too. You ask why when everybody stops to catch their breath. Keep that one close to you. 916-633-1537. Wretched and Wretched at gmail.com. Wretched Book Club on Twitter. Leave a review on Podchaser. Let me know what you think. Thank you all so much for listening. I greatly do appreciate it. Let five of your friends know about it. Share the show. Yeah. Oh, kids, if you got younger siblings and you want to hear more, check out Meow Me Reads. It's it's more based towards children's books, like young children's books. It's pretty dope. I read on it a couple of um, times, and I really did enjoy it. And I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much. Y'all have a great day. I'll holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name,